This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. My guest on this episode is Dr. Peter Nasco, professor of Japanese history and culture in the Department of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Nasco's most recent publication is Individuality in Early Modern Japan, Thinking for Oneself, available now from Rutledge. Dr. Nasco, thank you for being here. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here. Would you care to tell us a little bit about your most recent book? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk about it. I think, uh, you know, two of the most common tropes about Japanese society are that Japan is this homogenous country. And one finds often the, the saying, the Edo period saying, the nail that sticks up gets pounded. One finds this repeated over and over and over again. I began to, to, to query some time ago on the basis of, of research that others were doing, whether or not this was absolutely accurate. And uh, whenever I would spend extended time in Japan, what I was always struck by was the diversity of the people that I was seeing rather than homogeneity. In a, in a world where one is told that the nail that sticks up gets pounded, perhaps one could see that in contemporary Japan, but it didn't seem to be the case in the Japan of 200 years ago. And so I began trying to interrogate the, the question of individuality, by which I mean not individualism, not the promotion of the idea that individual difference is necessarily good, but rather the acceptance of individual difference. I can tell you an anecdote in this respect. Some years ago, it's actually it's quite a few years ago now, it's almost 25 years ago, but I was walking on the Waseda campus with the dean who was my boss. And uh, as we were walking along, the dean asked me what I thought of the students that we were passing by. And I said to him that I thought that these students were just wonderful, you know, that they weren't at all like the neurotic classmates that I had when I was studying some decades earlier at one of Japan's best universities, best public universities. Uh, and uh, I pointed out that the students I was seeing were walking in groups of twos and threes, that they seemed to be smiling, the students in my classes, that they had uh, uh, a good attitude toward their studies, that they would attend class regularly, they would do well, maybe not brilliantly, but well. All of them seemed to have part-time jobs and to belong to at least two circles or clubs with whom they had a lot of social contact. And I contrasted this with the neurotic, politically obsessed classmates who I knew, you know, uh, uh, from some decades earlier. My dean looked at me uh, uh, pityingly, really, and uh, said to me, oh, Peter, you know, you just don't understand. These these young people that you admire so much, they're no good. They, they don't study hard the way you and I studied. And in this difference that they seem obsessed with, they're just not very Japanese. Now, what an interesting proposition to argue. You know, I don't, I don't think one would ever find during the Tokugawa period someone saying that another person might be un-Japanese. Uh, an assertion of a sort that one hears commonly. So how does one prove something like individuality? And that was really the challenge. I, I tried to, to stretch, string together a half a dozen different uh, snapshots of social life during the Tokugawa period and uh, to see if one can weave those together into an argument that suggests that quite possibly levels of individuality might have been higher 200 years ago than, say, today.
In your classroom teaching, do you approach the Meiji Restoration, or how do you teach about the Meiji Restoration? You know, I've, I've man fairly cleverly managed to arrange my teaching in such a way that I almost never have to go beyond about 1871, you know? so I'm when, curious, why 1871? Is that the... Iwakura mission. Okay. I mean, that seems to me a, a, a you know really important event in terms of turning the direction of the new Meiji government. Hmm. Uh, the the rest... You know, when, when looking at the questions that we were going to talk about, I mean, uh, uh, you were asking questions about the Meiji Restoration, and yet the kind of question, are we, are we now going to separate the Restoration from the period? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, I think I can talk about the Restoration. I'm not sure I can really talk about the period when, when all is said and done, but the Restoration itself seems to me to be a highly conservative, you know, motivated by self-interest coup d'etat. And the Meiji period seems to me to be a you know a very different kind of beast. And so, how did A become B? And I think that the Iwakura mission had an immense amount to do with it. So, take your top leadership or a bunch of them, send them overseas for a while, and watch everybody freak out at the fact that you know the rumors are actually worse than the, the rumors don't even come up to the horror of what we're seeing in terms of what needs to be accomplished. You're talking about the self-motivation, or, or self-interest, self-interest of the 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 conspirators. It calls to mind Tom Smith, you know, Japan's aristocratic revolution. Sure. And one of the questions that always comes up in in my classes is students will say, "Why do you get this group of samurai, who as soon as they come into power, set about dismantling the samurai as a class and and this whole institution that had propped up the samurai?" How do you answer that? My answer is usually that you have a group of samurai from very well-off domains, Satsuma yeah, and Choshu, sure. that have already carried out a number of reforms within their own domains that sure. have you know, balanced the budgets, opened up to the West, brought in Western technology, started modernizing the military. So they came at it from a much more pragmatic standpoint of learning from the West in order to catch up to the West. And so when they come to power, they say, well, this has to be the new path for the entire country of Japan, if we want to, if we if we want to retain our sovereignty as a as a unite, you know, as a mm. nation in in the face of Western incursion, then we have to catch up to the West somehow, and mm. we can do Absolutely. that best by learning from them. Yeah, well, that all makes that you know. I, I think I would answer it very similarly that uh, uh, this was not something that that uh, one would have undertaken if it were not the case that to do this, to dismantle the samurai class, to, you know, to dismantle that feudal apparatus, this was essential if Japan was going to succeed in having unequal treaties and uh, unfair tariffs rectified. And uh, so I think that that was crystal clear to the, the top leadership. And now it became a, a, a question of how does one mobilize the country to do something like that. And that, I think, is you know where one finds the individuality actually uh, beginning to, to suffer you know, at that particular point. When it becomes more about the subordinating group. yourself, the individual to the state. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, uh, uh, the, the story of Japanese history that I learned in the late 1960s, reading things like Bray Bray Shaw and stuff, 
you know, was that uh, Japanese history could be characterized by alternating periods of reception, receptivity to foreign sources of learning and rejection of foreign sources of learning. And then when you would have these periods of rejection of foreign learning, such as during the Tokugawa period or during the Heian period, that somehow Japan would fall behind some other civilizational source. And then with a kind of shock of ice water, Japan would awaken to this having fallen behind. And that then as, as if uh, uh, with a kind of national consensus, the, the country would cooperate in, in a, you know, redressing this, this issue. And Japan would actually sort of propel itself into the forefront of whatever was the, the civilizational norm of, of the days. Well, you know, it's a meaningful fiction. I mean, uh, uh, it's just not how Japanese history really operated, I think. And uh, so looking at that and looking at how something like the the reforms of the Meiji period were constructed on the backs of hardworking people, I mean, uh, imposed on them the tremendous sort of social cost of building a, a public education system, the dislocation that that did to families. Um, the 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 caricature of the Tokugawa period that was necessary in order to bring this about. I've got this lengthy quotation here from uh, from Fukuzawa. It goes like this: uh, 1872, four years after the, the the restoration. In the time of the Tokugawa shogunate, the distinction between samurai and common people was sharply drawn. The military families recklessly brandished their prestige. They treated the peasants and townsfolk as despicable criminals. They enacted such notorious laws as that which gave the samurai the right to cut down a commoner, kiriste gomen. According to these laws, the lives of the commoners were not truly their own, but merely borrowed things, karimono. The shogunate and the 300 daimyo treated the peasants and townsfolk despotically. They sometimes seemed compassionate to them, but they did not really recognize their inherent human rights, their mochimayano kenritsugi. You know, to which I say horse feathers. I mean, uh, that's really, that's, that's a grotesque distortion. I mean, here's a, here's a contrast. This is uh, Sir Rutherford Alcock writing in uh, 1863. Uh, Much has been heard of the despotic sway of the feudal lords and the oppression under which all the laboring classes toil and groan, but it's impossible to traverse these well-cultivated valleys and mark the happy, contented, and well-to-do populations which have their home and so much plenty and believe that we see a land entirely tyrant-driven and impoverished by exaction. Europe cannot show a happier or better-fed peasantry or a climate and soil so genial and bounteous in their gifts. Now, you know, maybe they're, maybe neither of these is completely accurate. I mean, as usually is the case. I mean, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. But, you know, when I started studying this stuff, I accepted Fukuzawa uncritically. That it was. It was the Tokugawa shogunate and their daimyo, you know, uh, sublords that uh, uh, exercised despotic sway that, o over the lives of common people. And very frankly, then, you know, I spent a career in adult life studying this and seeing that this wasn't what I was seeing. And so the question became really quite profound and internal. Uh, is there a misfit between the ideology, the version of the history that I was being told, and what I was encountering, 
or am I somehow a misfit? You know, in other words, am I unable to see what everybody else can see? And so that's what I've been working out. You know? Well, I think for Fukuzawa writing in 1872, it's very much the the spirit of the Charter Oath. You know, Absolutely. The, you know, the evil traditions of the past are going to be torn asunder. And this whole, you know, now everything's going to be based upon the just laws of nature. I mean, there is this kind of, I mean, as Carol Gluck talks about, you have to invent Edo as a mirror for the past. What I love about that that uh, phrase in the Charter Oath that 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 uh, you you know that you described that you stated is the manner in which it cannot actually be called political because if it's you know for an utterance to be political you have to be able to adopt the contrary proposition right so excuse me oh I'd like to stand up for the evil proposition you know, you know I'd like to st- you know stand up for those unjust customs you know and and so on so it's it's not arguable I mean who could who could say I'm going to stand up for evil right. customs of the past. I think he's 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 purposely exaggerating how Just bad so. it was to say that Just well so. that's why we have to do the exact opposite and the exact opposite that he's really championing is equality, democracy, liberalism. But I wonder if speaking of, you're talking about how that's what you learned when you first started reading about Japan and I mean is it possible that western historiographers who were trying to announced Japan as this success story of grassroots democratization, seized on Fukuzawa and seized on his descriptions of Tokugawa. And then that's what became the standard historical narrative of Japan's major restoration in the West. Well, it's not as if this view is somehow alien in Japan, though. Uh, 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 I mean, if if we were to come back, I could quote you any number of Japanese historians writing about Japanese education system who will say unambiguously that this notion of the bad Tokugawa, the good Meiji, that it persists into the standard narrative regarding Japanese history, modern Japanese history, that's being fed to students, you know, today. So I think this is a, this is a meaningful issue that, that, that has an ongoing quality to it. you also compare individuality in the Tokugawa period to today. So how, I mean, other than this anecdote, how many, or what kind of differences do you see between individual life, everyday life between today and, and the Tokugawa period? I'm not sure I can answer that question exactly, but, you know, let me say, so like, one chapter that I've got, you have, you have to have a chapter on protest, right? So if you're going to do a book on individuality, I mean, it's, it's got to be that thing on self-assertion, protest, mm-hmm. this sort of stuff. So let's say during the Tokugawa period, there were like 3,001 Iki, peasant rebellions, you know, and they, they range in a, tremendously from like petitions that are either legal or quasi-legal, all the way to really violent, quite, you know, quite violent uprisings uh, uh, that could involve immense destruction of property. 3,001 during the, the Tokugawa period. And of course, they accelerate in number during the course of the period. Look at protests in Japan today. I mean, where in Japan does one find a vibrant public sphere? To me, maybe the most vibrant public sphere in Japan is in Okinawa. Um, 
if I look at uh, the anti-nuclear protests that occur, first of all, I mean, the difficulty, uh, it, all of this is organized through social networking, as I understand it. Uh, one never finds announcements in newspapers saying that there will be a demonstration on such and such a day, you know, in, in such and such a place. And the people who are protesting, I mean, do they see any evidence at all of the effectiveness of, of their protest? To which I would argue, I mean, uh, perhaps I'm overlooking something quite obvious, but I don't see the evidence of the effectiveness of those protests. And nor do I see massive participation. I mean, uh, you know, in a country of 125 million people, if 10,000 show up for a particular protest, are we to say, oh, well, look at this massive turnout. But a demonstration of 10,000 people today is fairly large. So, you know, what has changed? And if I were to say, like, what has changed? I think it's the perception on, of whether or not such protests are effective. I think during the Tokugawa period, there were so many peasant rebellions because, in fact, peasants learned that if they did have these rebellions, the, the everyday conditions of their otherwise marginal lives would actually be somewhat improved, that uh, uh, taxes or rents might be abated for a year or two during a time of relatively poor harvests, or that uh, earlier punishments might be granted an amnesty, or you know, a variety of other things. But uh, without question, the protests during the Tokugawa period could be counted on to be effective. And the protests nowadays seem to me to be ineffective. Now, that to me is a, a absolutely meaningful change. I was actually just lecturing on 1960s oh, wow. uh, in Japan last yeah. night, um, talking especially about the, the Ampol protests in sure. 1960, the Bay Hayden protests yeah. from 1965 into 70, the student protests in 1968. I was there. You were there? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1969, I was Go there. on. No, 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 no. <laughs> you I was there. I was, no, I was, uh, there were big protests at Columbia University in 1968, where I, went, that was, I was a first-year student at Columbia, begun studying Japanese in the summer of 1969. I went to Japan for the first time. I found demonstrations that looked quite familiar. Yeah. I've always, I, I mean, I'm going to completely change topics, and I want to on. talk about yeah. the, the student protest. I was always curious, I, I mean, I was just, in my lecture, I was talking about how this was maybe about 4% of the student population in Japan, thinking okay. about maybe 300,000 students or so. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we, we remember all these images of, say, a, a, a Kyoto University where the administration building is completely taken over and you can see the police and the firefighters shooting, you know, water cannons into the, into the building. And I think at Waseda, there was one building that was taken over, and Todai, one building was taken over. The clock tower. Was the campus shut down, or did, did classes go on? I was there during the summer. So, okay. you know, uh, uh, in fact, classes were already in were kind right. of a recess. So I really can't say about that. I can tell you an anecdote, which is that, uh, you know, I met uh, Professor Mariyama Masao in 1975, and I spent, uh, you know, really, I was privileged to spend several hours in conversation with him told me an anecdote about how he was taken hostage during those uh, uh, riots at Tokyo University. And, uh, you know, he was kept a hostage in the, 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 the watch building, the, the clock building, Tokei, you know, building. And uh, at a certain point, it became evident that, the, that he was going to be released. 
And, uh, you know, there were hundreds of protesters. Uh, uh, everything was now being negotiated, like, how do you do an amnesty for the protesters? How do you release your hostages? You know, avoid further injury or any injury for that matter. Um, and the, as he was about to be released, a, a student came up to him, one of the demonstrators, and said, uh, well, Professor Maruyama, you know, uh, uh, do you recognize me? And he said, uh, no. And he said, uh, well, I'm actually a student in that class that you were teaching at the, in the Hogakubo. So, oh, okay. So, well, do you think you could write me a letter of recommendation? <laughs> you know, and I think that that's just wonderful. I mean, uh, I don't really know what to make of that, but I find that really quite charming. What I what I especially noted though about the demonstrations that I witnessed was the extent to which they were kind of what I would call a fair fight. In other words. The police had helmets, batons, shields, stuff like this. The students had helmets, batons, shields, stuff like that. And uh, so it had a kind of a, to me, that was a kind of an elegance. In other words, mm -hmm. it wasn't like sort of overpowering. I'd, I'd seen demonstrations in France the previous summer. Uh, in fact, it seemed to follow me wherever I went. And in, in France, uh, you know, the use of tear gas was rampant. But that didn't seem to be quite the case in, on the Japan side. That's amazing that the protester who is holding his <laughs> professor hostage then went and asked for a letter. It's breathtaking, isn't it? Really. I, I mean, I, something like that, by the way, happened at, at Columbia University yeah. where I was. Uh, the dean, very popular dean, Harry Carmen, he was taken hostage in Hamilton Hall, a main student classroom building. And I, I've heard anecdotally that one of the students asked him for a letter. Well, I, I've often read that one of the criticisms of the student protests was the reason that they ended was, well, they were going to graduate. They all needed to go get jobs. Mm. So, I mean, if you you need a, a recommendation from a professor, if you want to go get a job. I, I guess mean, so. You know, now that, yeah. you know, the days of protests are over, now we got to go. It on certainly it. does feel that way. I mean, I, I, I was struck by this when I was in Japan in uh, 2014 to 2015, the yes. really how uh, apolitical, uh, the current generation of undergraduates is, and how uncritically they accept the uh, utterances of the government on all sorts of issues. I think there was the Shiru's, the Students for Emergency Action for Liberal Democracy, I think. Yeah, was. Like that. <laughs> but again, they disbanded when they, when they yeah. said, well, we need, now we need to go graduate and, and <laughs> you know, get jobs in, in, in the real world. I think my classmates, you know, going back to those sort of student demo times, uh, I think my classmates stayed kind of radical for a longer period, that they harbored these uh, subversive uh, perspectives. Uh, some of this may be coming out today, by the way, in, Nor in the United States, in U.S. politics, one, one wonders. Going back to the peasant uprisings in yeah. the Tokugawa period, you were saying that they, the peasants believed that they were more effective. Yes, they believed that there was some, there was some reason to, to, to assume that there would have be a, a positive, at least a modestly positive improvement in their lives as a consequence of the protest. Now, when, when thinking about teaching the major restoration, mm. and there's been much research uh, about peasant movements in the Tokugawa period, mm. uh, Anne Walpole's book comes to mind, Stephen Blasto's, Herb Bix, uh, all arguing about this question, you know, do these peasant movements and protests, does that amount to a grassroots movement for the Meiji Restoration? Mm -hmm. or, or is did they have, did they entertain kind of anti-establishment desires of overthrowing the Tokugawa, do you think? Oh, such a profound question. I mean, uh, I had, uh, I'm really not sure about the, the role of peasants mm -hmm. uh, in the Tokugawa. Uh, Gideon Fujiwara makes, a, a, to my mind, a really compelling case that uh, merchants, for example, were spectators 
during the Meiji Restoration, uh, not not meaningful participants, that their cash might have been borrowed and used you know, in certain circumstances, but they weren't to be confused with the people who were actually doing the fighting, nor were they to be confused with, with peasants who were really, I thought, I think, uh, you know, from most perspectives, really quite marginalized, except to the extent that they were brought in, conscripted into, into armies that may have been turned against the Tokugawa. When thinking about the motivations behind the, the, the Meiji Restoration, I had a, a, a long-standing and very, very pleasant uh, uh, ongoing debate with the late Hal Bolitho uh, from Harvard. And Hal, you know, uh, Hal knew of my scholarship at the time. Basically, uh, you know, uh, I think in those days when Hal and I were having this discussion, I really was embracing much more of a kind of a conventional view regarding loyalism and so on as sort of uh, uh, determining factors in the leadership of the Meiji Restoration. And Hal would counter that by saying that the only the only idea that he can identify as being having a, a a decisive quality in the decisive influence in the Meiji Restoration was the the self interest, and uh, you know again we went back and forth on this quite a bit. I'm coming over increasingly over to Hal's point of view on that. Uh, I now I think increasingly see self interest as the primary motive in the leadership of the Meiji Restoration. I don't think that that's certainly not the way it was taught to me. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone is saying it. it's it's a French Revolution. You know, there's no storming of the Bastille, for example, in in Tokugawa. Um, but the kind of millenarian revolts, you know, the Yonaoshi, Age uh, yes. and the Age Aika revolts. I mean, there seems to be there seems to have been some kind of consciousness that something was going to happen. The Age Aika one is 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 compelling. I mean, no, one can't quite get around that one. Uh, and definitely the sense that the, the, the times are changing, you know, almost kind of a Bob Dylan-like way, no, no question about that, too. But that whether the outlines of the change are clear or, you know, who exactly is standing for what or is it okay to change one's mind about what side one is going to be gone, I think all of that is, is uh, left to be uncovered, at least. The Bob, you can uncover that. You know? the, the Bob Dylan comparison is is very good because I was just talking about last night when we talk, you know, the, the guerrilla folk for the 1960s in Japan was Japan's Bob Dylan. Sure. Okabayashi Nobuyasu. Sure. And so it was his songs like Sanya Blues and Tomoyo that, that gave voice <laughs> to this generation. So, I, you know, to come back to this uh, question, it, with the protests, say, in the 1960s, would you ascribe to them that same kind of political agency that we see in the Tokugawa period? It, the personality types seem to me to have been very different. Uh, you know, if we're talking about Tokyo University, I mean, we're talking really about elite kids. And uh, so they were, to my mind, kind of cocktail Marxists. Um, what I remember is, you know, my classmates endlessly talking about politics, but the venues where they were talking about politics often revolved around bottles of Nika whiskey and mahjong boards. And so there was a kind of a degenerate, you know, self-indulgent, uh, again, I'm going to call this kind of a cocktail Marxist. A bourgeois. <laughs> something like that, you know. In other words, you could do your demonstration, you could have a lot of fun, almost like the controlled violence of a sports event, you know. But then you could kind of quickly, the waters would close over and you could uh, go back to your mahjong and your whiskey and uh, uh, talking politics and feeling, you know, 
wonderful about life. And then ask you know your, that your future is assured, right? And ask your Hasid professor for a recommendation. Ask your Hasid professor for a letter of recommendation. <laughs> get a job right? after you graduate. You know, right. One of the things I was touching on in my lecture as well is that it's really hard when looking at, say, the student protests, it's really hard to say that they're left or right, Cons you know, liberal con or conservative, right? Uh, most but of just anti-establishment, yeah. Right. I, I mean, even the fact that I think it was the, the Zen Kyoto brought in Mishima Yukio yeah. to give a speech to the students at Kyoto, I think yeah. it was. Uh, I mean, certainly we wouldn't associate Mishima with any sort of leftist movement. The, the protests that uh, I found the most interesting, I think, don't occur anymore. And they were the, the, the what you could call like the, the subway kawashi, you know, where mm -hmm. you'd have like your commuters on a particular morning just finally deciding that they've had enough. And they'll, you know, sort of rough up the station master, uh, uh, perhaps you know, do acts of vandalism in the station, stuff like that. And uh, just let loose a lot of frustration that I think... Uh, only the commute, the commute would only been a kind of the surface of that, the immediate flashpoint for the, the, the release of frustration and anger. In 1960, the train drivers went on strike, you know, and, and so once the train stopped, then you know it's a problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> postal service, service yes. workers throwing letters out the windows of the, yes. of the postal headquarters. I mean, yes. I mean, so 1960 really does seem to be this flashpoint. But as I was telling the students, this all occurs after the treaty has already been signed by the Diet. Sure, sure. And so even there, they're not protesting in an attempt to stop the treaty from being renewed. It's almost this kind of expression of anger that they really do realize that they're pawns that can't change the system at all. You know, whether this has something to do with, again, like this kind of Dylan-esque times they are changing or, or what, I mean, it's... It's, it's awfully hard to say. It's, it's good to bear in mind, if you think of like the Columbia riots, you know, which really were, this was bloody stuff. I mean, uh, on one particular night uh, uh, in the spring of 1968, I think something like 1,050 of my classmates were arrested. You know, I mean, that's, that's a whole lot of student body to, you know, to arrest. Uh, but if you think like, you know, so what were the issues? Well, you wanted to end the war in Vietnam, yeah, that's all. But the whole thing started because of uh, an argument over the architecture of a gymnasium that was proposed from Morningside Park, that there was to be like a, a separate entrance for people from the neighborhood, which was to be at the basement level coming in through Morningside Park, whereas then the elite students of Columbia would come in through the upper level, you know, not have to descend into Morningside Park and would have a, a separate entrance where they could show their Columbia IDs and, you know, ha all have all this kind of access and how, you know, sort of racist and vile and condescending and contemptible, you know, all this sort of was, completely overlooking the fact that what Columbia was doing was proposing to use some of its facilities, private facilities, you know, for the public good. I mean, it was kind of terribly ironic, but I mean, that was the flashpoint, yeah. an argument over the architecture of the proposed gym that never got built. It always starts somewhere. Right? It starts somewhere, isn't it? The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.